Welcome to Voice for Choice podcast, the podcast that focuses on China issues with special attention to the Central and Eastern European perspective. I'm your host, Karanya Mečkova. Joining me today will be Grzegorz Stets. We will be discussing the latest developments in the EU-China relations. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for the invitation. Grzegorz Stets is a China analyst at Mercator Institute for China Studies, known as MERIX. Greg's research focuses on EU-China relations, on China's diplomacy and foreign policy apparatus, and China's information manipulation and foreign interference. Prior to joining Merix, he founded a Brussels-based nonprofit platform, EU China Hub, and co-founded a Beijing-based consultancy company focused on impact of the Belt and Road Initiative. He also worked as a contributor to Oxford Analytica. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation to be on our podcast. A pleasure to be here. We are in Brussels. Thank you so much for inviting us to, to your office. I always like to start with a few introductory questions to introduce my guest. What was your first impression when you came to China? Well, it was 2009, uh, 2009 so you could still feel the energy of the 2008 Beijing Olympics, the, the dynamism, but also you could also feel this very different societal setup. And this is something that got me very interested in China, but more broadly also in Asia at the time, because uh, China wasn't really my initial first choice when I was choosing my study. So I sort of gravitated over time towards towards China field. So the, the, the first impression was really about this sense of dynamism, change, a really vibrant place. And this also kept me coming back over those next years. Uh, and in the end, I ended up spending uh, around five years in, in Beijing, that being my base and traveling around China. And what I miss the most now, uh, being outside of China, uh, is especially the interactions with the Lao Baixing. That's uh, really something uh, that you know you you keep in your heart. Uh, all those very direct and but kind-hearted gummer of Beijing, all the Ai, the taxi drivers that are always there to give you a, a life advice. Uh, but in my heart, I'm a northerner when it comes to China. So really, really those rough northern accents and so on. That's that's my vibe. And, you know, I feel that China really pushes you and teaches you a, a certain level of intellectual humility uh, because you have to just abandon some of the frameworks when you when you start engaging with it. But at the same time, it also teaches you where you stand on issues. So it's important to to also define that in the process. So. Uh, let's say that uh, it's been a, a really long relationship with China. And do you remember the moment when you decided to focus professionally on China? It wasn't a, really a, a very particular moment in my case. To to a certain uh, to a certain extent, it was a flow of things that really brought me there, rather than a conscious strategic decision. Um, As I told you, I, I didn't really start from the beginning thinking that I would be working on China specifically. Actually, my initial interest was in India. Uh, but uh, as I wanted to study India at first as part of one of the BA degrees that I was doing, and the uh, language course that was supposed to run on Hindi was temporarily postponed, uh, I had to take something else. I took Chinese, and that sort of random decision uh, made me gravitate towards China. I went to Beijing, I spent a year there, made quite a few uh, important people, um, friends and so on, that then made me also stick to the to the topic uh, 
pursued further studies in UK, then back again to China, uh, starting the company that you mentioned, and really looking at EU China first. All of that kind of started through uh, a flow, a process, rather than a very specific mm. decision that you know I wake up one day and I think like, okay, I'm I'm doing China professionally. We just had elections in Czech Republic. And our new Czech president-elect, Petr Pavel, uh, spoke with Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen over the phone, which was quite an unprecedented move for an EU head of state. Do you think that this recent diplomatic spat between China and the Czech Republic will somehow affect EU-China relations? Uh, I don't think that the fallout has been major so far from, from that specific call. It is, of course, a major development. As you said, it's quite an unprecedented thing for for a head of state uh, in Europe to, to do, to have this kind of call. But we have to keep in mind that the call lasted 15 minutes. It wasn't really a strategic discussion. It's, of course, symbolically really important also in the context of sensitivity of relations with Taiwan from perspective of Beijing. So all of that, of course, is there. But... I think it's also noteworthy that Pavel's communication over Taiwan has been, um, well, it, it doesn't necessarily look extremely thought through in the sense that you see aspects of, for example, confusing the one China principle with one China policy. So I think even looking from perspective of Beijing, it might seem that rather than a well thought through policy shift, it might just be a, a really personal um, personal push. Um, and in that context, I think that Beijing probably counts on the trend that we've seen among many EU leaders that once they come into the office, they tend to tone down and revert a little bit back in terms of the level of this kind of political symbolism uh, that where they would be stepping on Beijing's toes. This, this might be a consideration on the Beijing side. But one other issue is also that we, of course, now are all looking at the matter of spy balloon over the U.S. that definitely diverted a lot of the attention towards this towards this topic, which also limited the fallout and how how big of a of an impact it had. Now, having said that, of course, much depends on how the situation unfolds, right? Whether Pavel is going to to stick to to some of his statements related to travel to Taiwan or meeting with Tsai Ing-wen. That, that would be something totally different, that, that's much more tangible than the call itself. Um, and there are, of course, more tensions on the horizon. I mean, I, I think we are all uh, thinking about whether the Czech Republic is brewing, leaving the 14 plus 1 format. But the key question is how? Because we had, for example, Estonia and Latvia leaving the framework last year, and that didn't really facilitate major escalation of tensions, rather Beijing trying to reach out to Central and Eastern European countries through sending special representatives. Right. So I think we, of course, this is a very important development, the call that happened, but at, at this stage, I wouldn't yet overstate uh, how much of an impact it's going to have. As you mentioned, he um, he said during the campaign that he could meet potentially with President Tsai. First of all, he spoke about a visit to Taiwan. After the the election, he mentioned that uh, probably he could meet President Tsai uh, in Prague. What would be the scenario that could trigger China? I mean, the, definitely the even the meeting itself or his travel to to um, to Taiwan would be definitely definitely a trigger. Mm. 
the whole question related to this kind of interaction is that from the onset, it would be diplomatically problematic, not only from perspective of China, but also even EU and I think Czech Republic's own diplomatic setup in terms of relations with Taiwan. Because as the EU countries pursue the One China policy, they still recognize the government of the PRC as the legitimate government. In that situation, in what capacity do you meet President Tsai Ing-wen? Do you meet her in the similar setup as a head of state? That's a very strong political statement that's theoretically contradictory to the policy that you're pursuing. So this is really a really a Pandora's box uh, should that be open, not only for the reason of reactions from Beijing, but also in terms of how do we really define the relationship with Taiwan. And now, at the same time, a lot is being done, and I think that's that's a good thing that there is a lot of engagement and discussion between uh, EU actors and Taiwanese actors. We see a lot of exchanges from uh, parliamentary delegations going to to Taiwan, um, and that's not only Central and Eastern Europe, right? Absolutely. Uh, also Germany, Italy, um, European Parliament has been also sending mm -hmm. delegations. So these discussions should be going on, but. The whole question is, how would we square the circle of one China policy with any engagements from the actual heads of state? How do the Western member states perceive these big symbolic steps in the rapprochement between the Eastern European countries and Taiwan? Because the potential retaliation of China could then fall on the whole of EU. Sure. Um, I think it very much depends as to what kind of retaliation are we talking about. And here the case that we can fall back on is, of course, the case of Lithuania. That is really the, the telling one as to how things can really escalate. Um, and here, when still the retaliation was much more focused on bilateral issues, I think it was kept and contained on the, in the realm of bilateral relations. The real issue when it became a, a focus topic for the EU at large was when China decided to move towards disrupting the single market by trying to put pressure on German companies that were using components from, Lithuania, uh, from Lithuanian providers, Lithuanian suppliers. So I think, of course, it's a very political question of discussions between the member states about which state in EU-China relations are we right now? I think right now, and I'm sure that we'll be talking about this, we're in this moment of tactical stabilization. Um, so I, I'm sure that this kind of disruptions uh, would not be welcomed by a number of, of um, EU member states. But at the same time, you know, each member state pursues their own foreign policy in the end of the day, and they have the, the right to it. But I think it's important, and that's also relevant in the Lithuanian case, that what's really good is before making disruptive uh, or, or really sudden foreign policy changes, it's good to inform and talk with other European counterparts. And I think like this is a very important component that, of course, should work both ways, not only for Central and Eastern European mm. countries to, to, let's say, signal ahead uh, to, to Western ones, but also the other way around. As you mentioned... All the member states have their own foreign policies. How difficult is to achieve some EU unity on China? Uh, what are the different camps or positions that we can see among the member states? Um, can you explain a little bit what, what are some of the diverging interests between the main uh, leaders? Of course. I think the 
point of departure that we should take is that we have a common EU framework for China policy. I mean, you know, it's been repeated so many times, but I think we, we always have to treat it as the as the departure point that we have the holy trinity of the EU's China policy from 2019. So the cooperation partner, economic competitor, systemic rival as this basis. Now, this is, of course, a fig leaf to a certain extent, because it doesn't give you any strategic priorities um, in terms of which aspect of this relationship is more important. And over those last uh, last year, uh, and so the, the, the aspect of systemic rivalry and economic competition has been becoming more and more important. Uh, but I don't think that we are even capable of uh, just achieving unity on China in the sense like, you know, done, achieved, and now we're going to be united on China. I, I don't think that's possible in the current system, system of uh, EU's foreign policy and the competency that is on the EU level the way that member states have veto power, just the entire setup, basically to have a united China policy, we would have to have united European uh, EU foreign policy period on everything. And that requires a systemic change. Now, uh, until then, I think that the unity and the way that we should think about unity is rather than like something that we can achieve and it's just going to be there, uh, we should think about it as a constant political exercise, constant negotiations. Uh, it's case-by-case -case basis, and this is what makes it so problematic uh, in the end of the day. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that we have this kind of solidified camps. Uh, member states have a lot of differences in terms of their interests, outlooks. Some have China strategies or China guidelines. Others haven't really defined their position on China quite clearly. Like, Everyone, of course, subscribes to the Holy Trinity, but again, that doesn't really tell you much. But I think if you want to talk about patterns of considerations, um, well, first of all, China is a horizontal issue right now. So for a number of EU countries, it's not necessarily that they have a very clear, focused interest on China specifically. But China, of course, now is important in terms of their industrial policies, is important in terms of their economic security, green policies, their relationship with Washington, their geopolitical outlook. So in that sense, China becomes, um, let's say, not the primary focus for, for many member states. And this is why it's also harder to actually reach the common position. But again, if, if you think about those patterns of consideration, I think that we can now think about two trends of thinking among the European capitals. And this is following the Russian invasion, um, where we had uh, a group of EU capitals and EU countries that are primarily thinking through the perspective of economic security, looking at the questions of dependencies, the questions related to, to strategic uh, vulnerabilities in, in strategic supply chains. Uh, of course, the, the lessons learned from the energy dependency on Russia, all of that is there. And this is part of the discussion. And there is another group, um, and maybe just to add to the economic security camp or trend, there, that's also when the relationship with Washington, the question of Inflation Reduction Act and the relationship with Washington becoming more problematic through this angle, all come in. 
And you have the second group where I think a lot of Central and Eastern European countries would fall into where more traditional security and geopolitical security considerations are coming to the forefront, given China's relationship with Russia and its uh, tacit and not so tacit uh, support of Russia over time. And then uh, again, the, the systemic rivalry becomes uh, a, a key consideration. What would you say to European politicians who still believe they can convince China to pressure Russia over the war? Yes, um, definitely the first thing that I would say is uh, if Xi Jinping travels to Moscow soon, uh, which uh, I think is on the cards, to watch this visit quite closely and really take notes, uh, because I feel like we should really be cautious with the wishful thinking that we may indulge in, that China suddenly would come and save the day, uh, rain, rain Russia in, and um, and the situation would become more stable. We have to be mindful of the rhetoric that China has been pursuing consistently since the beginning of the Russian invasion. Uh, the, the fact that China squarely blames the reason of the war being supposedly NATO's expansion, it's definitely not the type of mindset that we are in, or I don't think that the Ukrainians are in as well. Uh, and the question is, even if China, and that's a very big if, first of all, if China really has this kind of sway over, over Moscow, which is partially doubtful, if Moscow hasn't really been banned by the, by the sanctions that have been imposed on it, what would Beijing do and how far would actually Beijing even want to go in terms of imposing additional measures? Second of all, if Beijing was even to mediate, it's hardly hardly believable that it would be a type of mediation that the Ukrainians or us would want to see. So in other words, what are we even hoping to achieve through that? Of course, it's important to engage China on the issue, talk about it, because uh, it's important to signal that Beijing doesn't extend even greater support. That's, that's also important that there has been quite some constraint on the Chinese side in terms of uh, at least how they frame it or how they want to be perceived following mm. uh, following the sanctions. Um, but I think it's important that, that we remain cautious, at the same time acknowledging that Beijing likely also doesn't want the Russian invasion and the war to spin out of control. Like, for example, using the nuclear weapons is likely not what China would want to see. At the same time, I doubt that Beijing is uh, exercising a lot of pressure, like the visit of Chancellor Scholz that supposedly as the major deliverable being the, right. the Xi Jinping commitment. I mean, China has been saying this kind of general statements on nuclear weapons mm. not being used for years in UN framework. So relevant that it came from Xi, but uh, so I wouldn't just be hoping too much um, on in, in regards to China playing, uh, mm. from our perspective, a constructive role. After three years of COVID isolation, China has once again opened up to the world. Uh, Xi Jinping has come back to the diplomatic stage and we have seen the renewal of high-level visits uh, in November and more are scheduled for the spring. Uh, furthermore, in recent weeks, we have seen uh, that the Chinese diplomats have been trying to find ways to warm up relations uh, with Europe. How successful is Beijing's charm offensive and how long will it keep it if the Central and Eastern European countries uh, continue to push its buttons? Sure. Um, 
I think generally speaking, we're now in the moment of tactical stabilization. And of course, Beijing has been, as you said, the one that is opening after years of COVID isolation, re-engaging diplomatically, reopening the channels. But there is interest on both sides to pursue this kind of stabilization. Both sides, both the EU and China, are facing economic challenges right now. And uh, in that sense, disturbing the relationship between one another in the short term is definitely not something that either of the sides wants to see too much. So in that sense, there is interest on both sides to pursue tactical stabilization. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Beijing's charm offensive is particularly successful uh, because, yes, we're reopening all those channels. You know, it's important to, to re-engage in terms of having channels of actual discussion. That's, that's very useful regardless of the state of the relationship. But in terms of Beijing actually convincing the European actors that this time is different, this time Beijing is going to pursue a constructive relationship with Europe, I don't think that's really the case. Uh, I think, you know, if we look at the Davos speech that she gave a few years back during Trump presidency, that really made some of the European actors believe that China may now be a partner in uh, supporting economic globalization. That's by far not the case now. The, the, the statement from Liu He at Davos that China is back uh, and, you know, open for business and so on, I, I don't think it landed the same way. Uh, and similarly, generally speaking, in, in Brussels, like we don't really see Beijing proposing anything uh, concrete so far uh, in, in the context of this charm offensive. So it's a clear shift of rhetoric that is changing. But, uh, and that's of course important in terms of, again, being able to talk with one another much more easily, but that doesn't really change the underlying strategic divergences that we have. And a lot of the EU's plans for developing measures for the risking, uh, to use one of the most recent buzzwords, um, the risking the relationship with China, that's all still in place. And I don't think that this is something that's going to, to change. In terms of how long will China keep at uh, this kind of approach, hard to say. Uh, it can be uh, likely months, but at the same time, we're looking at a very intense 2024 uh, in the sense that we'll have the elections in Taiwan, we'll have elections in the US, we'll have the new European Commission. It's going to be a very, very intense year. So it's also possible that as Biden administration will be likely pushing for more uh, concrete deliverables and stronger measures uh, towards China that we have already seen uh, since autumn last year with the semiconductor measures with IRA mm -hmm. and, and so on, that Beijing may just be trying to, to, to speak more softly in order to try to prevent a little bit the containment. But there are so many disruptive issues on the horizon, whether we think about uh, Taiwan, whether we think about the anniversary of Russian invasion. So mm. it's possible that just at some point this kind of stabilization is going to become unattainable. As you said, the rhetoric is changing. China is toning down on the wolf warrior diplomacy that uh, we were we got used to now. Um, what is Ambassador Fu Tong's role in this diplomatic detente? Um, and how do you assess his first few weeks in office? Mm -hmm. So 
Ambassador Futong really has been extremely active since he arrived in Brussels um, by the end of last year. And he had a range of meetings with uh, EU um, EU officials with from, from the Commission, from the External Action Service, from the Council, also from NATO, from missions. He's been literally everywhere. Uh, it's really, really impressive. And uh, <clears throat> it's also... Um, a diplomat with uh, really a long experience. He spent 15 years uh, in UN structures, so he really knows how to play the diplomatic game and also engage in this more multilateral setting. So it's definitely an experienced uh, and and capable choice that Beijing made in terms of appointing him to uh, to to work in in Brussels. And what also comes through is his personal style. Uh, he's much more informal compared to his predecessor, Zhang Ning. Um, and this makes it much easier, as you said, in comparison to the many wolf warriors that we've uh, come to grow to know among the Chinese diplomats. Fu Zong is much more approachable. And this is really, as you hear also from uh, stakeholders in Brussels, a quality change in terms of the type of interaction. Now, at the same time, as we discussed in the context of the overall charm offensive, it's not really that Futong came with a new offer to a certain extent. It's old wine in a new bottle uh, <laughs> because, uh, you know, the, the, the points that he makes about the uh, possibility for the EU and China to lift sanctions uh, simultaneously um, and that's supposedly being a gesture from Beijing, given the fact that the EU imposed the uh, sanctions towards China first. Well, yes, but uh, nothing has really, as far as we know so far, at least there are no credible reports that the situation has changed in Xinjiang and that has been the base of the of the EU sanctions. So from the EU side, there, there, there is actually no, no, no reason to, to, to lift the sanctions. And then... Also, Ambassador Fu using uh, comprehensive agreement on investment as this kind of uh, carrot for uh, for Europe, uh, and of course there are still actors that find it very very appealing to to get back to this agreement. But a whole separate question that we would have to ask ourselves anyway, even if the sanctions were for whatever reason lifted, which is right now politically and unattainable, morally questionable, would be. Is the agreement that was negotiated in December, uh, like the, the, the negotiations were concluded in principle in December uh, 2020, uh, is this really a good agreement in 2023? That's something that we would have to really look into and revise. So, so again, the question is, is that really uh, an attractive offer necessarily? And similarly, Fu Song's points about the fact that we should just put China-Russia issues aside and treat bilateral relation between EU and China totally separately from China's relationship with Russia. I'm also reluctant to see that there will be many takers in the in the EU sphere to to really take that on, to separate those issues entirely. Uh, so that's why Ambassador Fu has been really active. He has changed to a certain extent rhetoric and has been really uh, really making a lot of work in terms of reopening channels of communication and communicating China in a different style. But uh, so far, there isn't that much tangible stuff that has that has come out of it. But again, we, we also have to 
to a certain extent wait and see what uh, what the next weeks and months bring especially given the fact that it seems as of now that it's likely that uh, Ambassador Fu, unlike his predecessor, doesn't have the mandate to negotiate uh, directly. Uh, so mm -hmm. he probably has to revert to the center. So it's always a process of also when Beijing is going to, to, to um, for example, come up with new proposals. Speaking of Chinese diplomats, uh, Wang Yi was scheduled to visit Brussels, but now it appears that he changed plans and he will only attend the Munich Security Conference. How do you read into this? Should we even read into it? Or So I think that anything that we say about this issue uh, at this stage about Wang Yi's visit is going to be to a certain extent a, a speculation because we don't have clear details as to why the decision, why the decision was taken. Um, we can, of course, try to speculate that uh, maybe the reception of the points that Fu Tong was uh, making in Brussels uh, and some of the offers that he was proposing in regard to Kai and, and sanctions wasn't really met with as much enthusiasm as China would have hoped for. And maybe that's what led Beijing to, to make this calculation and to Wang Yi um, deciding not to come to Brussels. But in the end of the day, we probably should first of all look at the message that he's going to bring to the Munich Security Council and try to really see if there is anything that um, could have been also brought up in Brussels, but in the end wasn't. So we just need more material in order to, to hmm. make more informed guesses on this. In January, Sweden took over the EU Council presidency from Czechia. What can we expect for EU-China relations under its leadership? What kind of approach uh, towards China will Sweden advocate for? So generally speaking, the relationship between Sweden and China has not been the easiest one, right? Uh, whether we think about the arrest of the Swedish citizen, or rather detention of the Swedish citizen, Gui Minhai, uh, that continues to be an issue in bilateral relations, but also uh, Sweden deciding to close, uh, I think, all of its Confucius Institutes, the questions related to uh, 5G row over, uh, over exclusion of Huawei from national um, 5G infrastructure. And on top of that, we also have the new, um, relatively new uh, government under Ulf Kristersson, uh, mm. who has a history of uh, being more assertive on China, also over the issue of Guiminhai. So top it as well with the fact that Sweden is in the process of joining NATO, which also affects its geopolitical considerations. The, 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 the Russia aspects definitely has uh, pushed it to make some of the geopolitical calculations uh, once again. So generally speaking, that's not necessarily a um, China sympathetic actor uh, from the onset. Having said that, when it comes to the presidency program that Sweden has put forward, China appears there um, in the context of building a more united European policy on China, finding more consensus between the member states, and that's there. But I think what's going to be more important across the Swedish presidency is, again, China as a horizontal issue that is there in the context of energy, that is there in the context of Russia, that in the end of the day, are just more 
pressing issues for for the EU. So um, China is definitely a key and important factor in all the discussions related to uh, industrial policy, for example, the discussions that we're having now in the context of uh, Critical Raw Materials Act, uh, in the context of um, uh, our, our new green industrial policies, also in the context of IRA. But um, all of that means that I think Sweden will be pushing for a more assertive China policy. But again, it's not going to be about China being in the spotlight. But China will be the underlying this horizontal issue that is is a consideration in many aspects. Because, you know, again, it's primarily the question of dependencies. What do we do with the diversification? How do we prepare for uh, on, on the question of economic security? We're also, as the EU, doing much more on FEMI, on the foreign, um, foreign information manipulation and interference. Uh, in that context also towards China. The WTO case, uh, the two WTO cases that the EU has launched um, towards towards China also proceeding, all of that will unfold over those over those months um, with probably also greater engagement with NATO. In January, we had the first joint statement by NATO and EU that mentioned China as well. So there will be a lot and uh, I doubt that Sweden would be a uh, would be a sympathetic voice towards China in in all of those considerations. But I don't think that China will be uh, on top of the agenda, given all of those other crises, the poly crisis that the EU uh, finds itself in still now. Let's elaborate a little bit more on that debate on um, reduction of risks arising from these close economic relationship uh, with China and all of these dependencies. The EU leaders emphasize a divergence from the US position that seeks to decouple from China. Instead, uh, as we have already mentioned, they have come up with this it's more soft-term de-risking, uh, the newest buzzword. Recently, the Netherlands and the US uh, closed a deal to restrict Dutch sales of advanced microchips manufacturing equipment to China. And some experts have argued that this deal exposed the EU's weaknesses as it was reduced to a mere bystander in this deal. Um, others have seen this as a sign of transatlantic alignment on the issue of economic security. Which one is it according to you? I think our relationship, the transatlantic relationship in this context is um, is more problematic over those last months. We, we still continue to have quite important divergences of opinion that are underlying fundamental differences in terms of our modus operandi, because we do agree on a number of challenges that are stemming from China's uh, not only let's let's call it geopolitical activity, but also just simply its economic setup. Um, but we want to approach it for, from a very different uh, different angles when it comes to uh, us as the EU and and the US. Uh, on the American side, it's much more about effectively trying to undercut some of the Chinese uh, innovative capabilities across the board overall. Uh, partially along the logic that any economic uh, development and like or rather economic benefits that China would reap could later feed into Beijing's building up its uh, strategic and military capacity and so on. 
from the European side, it's much more we want to really target the really specific issues that are security concerns. So in other words, um, not necessarily all the, um, all the semiconductors um, providers or, or, or those involved in the supply chain that were targeted by, um, by US measures are necessarily necessarily affected now um, or or rather should be should be affected because this is not a direct security concern so we're much more targeted in terms of our export export controls and this is a general uh, general issue that uh, that shows a different mindset from uh, the point of departure that we have and this continues to be to be a difference uh, between the EU and the US and it might become more and more visible throughout this year as Biden administration probably moves towards coming up with more of the, of this kind of measures, as we also heard uh, in the in the recent speech from from President Biden, that there will be there will be more push for self strengthening on the on the American side. And that also links to generally speaking, the as discussions in Brussels unfold, the question of, again, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, and generally speaking, the, the question of our competitiveness vis-a-vis -vis the US when it, when it implements this kind of measures is a whole separate question that also affects the EU's position and willingness to, to follow the US uh, on, on many of those issues and trying to protect our own interests, which of course requires us to first define them clearly, which <laughs> remains, remains a challenge. So in that sense, still, when it comes to the decision of the Netherlands, that's in the end of the day, partially a prerogative of the member state, right? The, 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 sure. whole, the whole question is, um, it all links also to the export of a specific company, the ASML, uh, the very important lithography equipment uh, provider in the, in the chip industry. Um, but I think the, the, the core question, again, defining the European interest and the fact that we coordinate and talk with one another more. And that links to what we discussed before, mm. that the unity on the EU side, unfortunately, is continuously a rolling basis exercise on many, many of those issues when the member states actually have their, their, their competencies and prerogatives. To sum it up, uh, what is your forecast for China-EU relations in 2023? What could be the main sources of tensions? Uh, is China's tacit support for Russia's war in Ukraine the main factor, or is it more complicated than that? Well, I think that 2023 will be a year in which we're constantly balancing between uh, this tactical stabilization and strategic divergence, where um, those, this is the time where we don't want to disturb the relationship in the short term, given the fact that we all need to focus on our internal uh, industrial policy discussions on uh, reviving our economies. Uh, and, and that's definitely a, a factor that is going to be very importantly pushing us towards keeping the relationship stable. That doesn't necessarily mean providing it with a new impetus and, uh, you know, really concrete, tangible deliverables or anything of this sort. I think those strategic divergences are remaining in place. We're still thinking about uh, China as the EU, primarily through the lenses of economic competitor and systemic rival, and that's probably here to stay. Um, 
and that links to the policies that are being developed on the EU level, but also is uh, probably cascading and has been cascading down to, to the member states uh, as well and to the EU capitals. Now, in terms of this main factor and the main disruptor, definitely China-Russia relationship is, is one aspect. I mean, we'll see again... Uh, the 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 visit of uh, Xi Jinping to to Moscow would definitely be something to watch uh, in terms of again how this is framed. We have also more discussions about um, whether Chinese companies have been providing support to Russian war effort more substantially. Uh, this is now ongoing and still, let's say that the news fog of war surrounding it uh, is still a little bit too much to draw a very authoritative conclusion on, on that specific topic. But that's definitely going to be one of the disruptions. Taiwan is going to remain surely, surely a topic. But uh, again, also the state of transatlantic relations is going to be an important factor uh, into how this how this unfolds. So we have a number of those uh, of those disruptors, not to mention all those topics that have been there and continue to be there that we tend to forget because then, then they suddenly became, you know, the everyday reality, whether we think about our consideration towards uh, human rights violations towards Xinjiang, whether we think about the Lithuania, the WTO case that is still unfolding, whether we're thinking about the already forgotten question of unequal market access that is actually still there. So a lot of those problems have been building up and have been piling up. They haven't really been resolved. We have more geopolitical tensions on the horizon. Uh, and on top of that, we have the question of uh, managing the dependencies, which really pushes us rather than closer towards one another than thinking about how we can protect one another from 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 each other or rather from our on our side, how we can protect ourselves from uh, dependence on China in, in this regard. So uh, it doesn't really look promising over the mid uh, slash long term. Uh, so even if right now we're obser observing the diplomatic stabilization, reopening of channels and so on, I think that we should be we should be uh, mindful that the strategic divergence is still there. Thank you so much for your analysis. Before I let you go, I have one more question. What would be your advice to young China scholars? I think, first of all, um, somewhat ironically, uh, follow the um, follow the strategy that is now being discussed by many European companies that uh, have invested in China and are thinking about diversification. Um, but what I'm advising is not to diversify away from the China field, but to pursue the China Plus strategy. Uh, in the sense that it's good to pair your China expertise with an expertise in another specific sub-subject, sub-topic, whether this is going to be economics, law, data science, it's good to pair it. Uh, I think that's that's one of the things that, that is good to pursue. Uh, another one, definitely, again, uh, Chinese sources. Uh, it's always something that's, uh, you know, has been repeated to death over and over again, but really reading the materials coming from China and Chinese internal domestic debates, that's really something that uh, the value of that cannot be overstated. And one last thing is definitely find a non-China, non-geopolitical hobby as well. I think this is really, really important because 
as you work on this topic day in and day out, uh, the situation can sometimes get a little bit overwhelming with all the geopolitical tensions that you need to be dealing with that a lot of people uh, in, in your life might not, for example, be following. Um, and it's important to have uh, a, a space to bounce back regain some of the, let's say, sanity, and then return to, to sometimes intense or, or, or sometimes even uh, really, really challenging topics that we have to deal with on an everyday basis in, in our work. So I think it's also really important from the context of just mental health to have some life outside of China and geopolitics as well. That's also very important. I think that's an excellent advice for everybody, not just young China scholars. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. On that note, if you are a young professional or a student from Europe, interested in China or China's relations with Europe, you can submit your latest work to Choice as part of our Future Choice initiative. For more information, check our website www.chinaobservers.eu. This was Voice for Choice. If you would like to know more about our work, please do visit our website at chinaobservers.eu. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We hope you'll make the right choice and tune in for the next episode of Voice for Choice.